Welcome to World Policy on Air, a weekly podcast from the pages and website of World Policy Journal, published by the nonprofit World Policy Institute in New York. I'm David Alpern. In this week's program, posted November 3rd, 2017, we talk with the moderator of a special WPI panel on arms and allies, security cooperation in East Asia, prompted by increasing threats from North Korea and the Trump administration. We'll also spotlight top stories in the new WPJ fall issue, cover line Constructing Family. But first, some timely insights from global affairs analyst and author Michael Moran, head of Transformative.io, Risk and Geostrategy Consultants, and a visiting fellow at the Carnegie Corporation of New York. Thanks, David. We don't hear much about the United Nations here in America these days, unless the world body engages in one of its occasional fits of stupidity, for instance, appointing Zimbabwe's Robert Mugabe as a goodwill ambassador, the UN is mostly off the radar for the average person here. Listeners to World Policy On Air, of course, will know that the myriad UN and related agencies, from UNESCO to the World Food Program to the IMF, comprise the skeleton of global governance in the second decade of the 21st century. Pity, then, that most of that infrastructure is still beholden to a brain designed in 1944. The populist wave that broke over the West in 2016 certainly did its part to push the UN further from center stage, but its lack of relevance to the most vital issues of the day has at least as much to do with its own dysfunctional operating system. Venality and corruption continue to plague the world body. One veteran UN official I spoke to last week has decided to leave after decades, saying, things are not good at headquarters, no one seems to be pointing the way forward. But the most crippled of the UN's vital organs is the UN Security Council, the 15-member panel that wields policy-making power, including the ability to send UN peacekeepers into the field. The five permanent powers, the U.S., Russia, China, France, and Britain, each have the power to derail or block anything for any reason, a reality that has rendered the UN powerless in the face of so many global outrages. Take a quick look at that list of permanent members. Is it any wonder why UN resolutions tend to be toothless bromides when they have to make their way past these five self-important national egos? So in the name of a better way, I'll revive a proposal I first made in Slate magazine back in 2012, as the Security Council was busy fumbling its chance to make a difference in Syria's brewing civil war. The idea? Eliminate the veto. Sure, the U.S. would lose a few more votes now and then, but so would China and Russia and the rest of the so-called Permanent Five. It would open the way for modernizing the Security Council, bringing in perhaps India, Japan, Germany, or Brazil. In such a council, the U.S.'s unique ability to form coalitions and mediate disputes would be amplified. And not for nothing, U.S. leadership on the Security Council's reform would finally vindicate the vision of Franklin Roosevelt, Churchill, and others who conceived the organization. Might there be a backlash? Oh, of course. The New York Post and populist politicians will have more to scream about when the U.S. loses its ability to veto any resolution regarding climate change or Israel, for instance. Russia, on the losing end of some vote, might even stalk out of the organization. But there are silver linings in both of these risks, too. For instance, the last time the Russians suspended participation at the UN in the late 40s, they weren't around to prevent the UN from coming to the defense of South Korea. In fact, it was one of the most productive periods in the UN's history. Imagine the golden age that awaits if we do away with the other five permanent members, too. For World Policy On Air, this is Michael Moran. You're listening to World Policy On Air. Now this. We can't have madmen out there shooting rockets all over the place. 
Little Rocket Man. We, we're going to do it because we really have no choice. Our goal is not war, but rather the complete, verifiable, and irreversible denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula. Two faces or voices of Washington's approach to North Korea. First, President Trump, ambiguous but threatening and insulting, at a Huntsville, Alabama rally in September. Then Defense Secretary Mattis playing the diplomat last month on the South Korean side of the demilitarized border zone, the DMZ. Saber-rattling rhetoric, Pyongyang missile and nuclear testing, military maneuvers involving South Korea, Japan, and the U.S., it all prompted a recent World Policy Institute panel, Arms and Allies, Security Cooperation in East Asia, featuring panelists who closely study alliances and joint operations in the region. Ankit Panda is senior editor at The Diplomat magazine. Emilia Puma is foreign policy advisor to the U.S. Air Force chief of staff. And Dr. Hyunwook Kim is professor of American studies at South Korea's National Diplomatic Academy. Moderating the discussion was WPI fellow Jonathan Crystal, and I talked with him about it the other day for this podcast. Jonathan Crystal, welcome back to World Policy on Air. Thanks for having me. Panda was impressed by the relative speed with which Pyongyang has recently demonstrated advances towards intercontinental missiles that could reach U.S. territories or even the mainland. What did he have to say about that? Well, he pointed out that it has been a goal of North Korea for a long time to be able to hit the United States with an ICBM. Uh, But what is surprising is the speed at which they have developed those capabilities over the last year. And what you've seen uh, in July is the first time they have been able to successfully test an ICBM. Now, when they test these missiles, they don't fire at a low trajectory towards the United States or really towards anyone, because that would be particularly provocative. So they fire at a, a high trajectory, so you kind of have to measure the time that it's engine fired uh, and how far it traveled in total, not how many miles away from North Korea it went. So we've seen that they have successfully been able to fire something that in theory could hit as far as Chicago, but I think most experts are more comfortable uh, talking about the northwest of the United States and certainly Alaska. And and that has been a a disturbing development uh, and something that um, certainly no one wanted to happen, but on the other hand, it was sort of expected, just not this soon. You talk about a high trajectory, but not so high a trajectory that they actually have to re-enter from outer space uh, with a warhead alone, which would be uh, a real test for their technology on building the warhead as opposed to the launch vehicle, and of course a greater challenge for uh, anti-missile protections of the United States or whoever. Yes, that's exactly right. What we don't know is if they are able to mount a nuclear warhead that will be able to survive re-entry from out of Earth's atmosphere. We don't know if they have been able to build any such a warhead that can survive re-entry, and that is a technical feat that is very difficult. And so I I don't think anyone has any doubt that they will eventually be able to achieve that. Uh, I mean, we're not talking about ancient technology. We're not talking about cutting-edge modern technology to do it. I mean, we're actually talking about technology that's 70 years old, or maybe not, maybe not quite that old, but you know, decades-old technology um, that they will eventually be able to to do. And I think that when you hear a lot of talk now, particularly well, really from from the president of the United States about 
preempting that um, or, or language from some of his advisors, that's really what they're trying to preempt. Not that they could hit anywhere with a, a missile, a kind of run-of-the-mill missile, but that they could fire something out of Earth's atmosphere that could come back into, the United, uh, into Earth's atmosphere at a high speed and hit the continental U.S. I'm not quite sure why hitting the continental U.S. is so much worse than hitting other parts of the United States, let alone our allies, but that seems to be a red line that, that has been set by, by the president. And what of Pyongyang's threat to move to a hydrogen bomb warhead? Well, we know that they, uh, the last test that they did was of a hydrogen bomb, and they have threatened to do a test over the Pacific Ocean. It wouldn't be the first time in the world that's happened, but it would be the first time in a long time. And we're talking about weapons that the destructive capacity is many, many times more than the bombs that exploded on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And we're talking about you know, maybe a hundred times more powerful. Um, now, psychologically, I'm not sure that there is any um, particular difference here. I don't think that uh, Trump's reaction would be different whether it's a hydrogen bomb test over the Pacific or a, a kind of normal, let's say, atom bomb test over the Pacific either. Um, but it does demonstrate their ability to... What, what it does do is show that they don't need to achieve a high level of accuracy if they're able to achieve a massive level of explosive capability. So they don't need to uh, hit the center of Seattle if they wanted to destroy Seattle. If you have something that powerful, you just have to sort of get it in the vicinity and you're going to cause a tremendous amount of damage if not destroy the entire city. So in that sense, it, you can kind of trade off the explosive power for uh, accuracy, and accuracy is a little bit harder, actually, when you're talking about that distance. Um, so it's troubling, but I, I'm not sure if it should trouble us so much more than uh, even a, a quote-unquote low-yield nuclear weapon, which, which is really almost a, a contradiction in terms. Panda said that uh, even the North's current progress towards an effective ICBM could, quote, raise the old Cold War specter of decoupling. What does that mean? So this is a, a great concern to, I think, many people who, who follow this issue, particularly in the Trump administration. What Pyongyang is trying to do, and what decoupling means, is to split uh, the allies, in this case to split South Korea from the United States, uh, and to a lesser extent split Japan from the United States and from uh, uh, South Korea. Um, what they would like to do is to make South Korea doubt whether or not the U.S. would come to their aid in the event of a conflict on the Korean Peninsula. The thinking here is that the Trump administration wouldn't sacrifice, the, I don't mean to keep picking on Seattle, but wouldn't sacrifice Seattle for Seoul. And that once they're able to hit the continental U.S. and destroy a major U.S. city with a nuclear weapon, that the U.S. would say, well, why? Why do we even care about this? If they you know, if they attack Seoul, are we really willing to sacrifice an American city for it? And I think that that uh, up until now, there has been no real doubt about U.S. Uh, support for South Korea or for any of its allies, frankly, uh, for J Japan or for NATO allies. Uh, and that, that element of uncertainty has been introduced by the current administration. And 
uh, Kim Jong-un, who, who endorsed President Trump in the election, uh, if we go back that far, I think is, is trying to take advantage of that. And so he is moving very rapidly to try to... Um, it, uh, to, to try to increase the level of uncertainty and kind of split the U.S. Um, from South Korea. The other thing that he's trying to do, or the other thing that works in his favor, is that you have this sort of difference in approach, um, at least a perceived difference in approach between the U.S. and Seoul. Uh, the new president of South Korea is, um, wants to push hard on the North. I think he's not as soft as people think. I think he is uh, also fairly tough on the North, but he is also consistently willing to talk uh, and I think would be willing to talk if the opportunity presented itself. And, but the North has an incentive not to do that, at least for now, because they want to, uh, they, they need to achieve this level of uh, second strike capability before they come to the table. And his willingness to keep the option open for dialogue, even with these consistent tests, makes maybe some perceived daylight between South Korea and the U.S. Now, Trump seems very tough on this, but we also can't forget that Trump has gone back and forth on whether he would talk to Kim Jong-un you know, for the last 18 months from during the campaign, actually even before the campaign, as early as 2014, um, possibly even earlier, Trump talked about his willingness to talk to Kim Jong-un. He said uh, before the campaign even started that he thinks that he would, be, he would have a good chance of being able to talk North Korea out of its nuclear weapons. So the idea that the South Korean president, President Moon, um, is somehow softer than the U.S. on this, I think is a, a misperception, but it is a real perception. And I think that, that the North will try to take advantage of. How did the U.S. deal with the problem of decoupling back in the Cold War? And how did Panda see that challenge now? Well, in the, in the Cold War, what you have, and, and what we should have now, but we, we, we don't quite, is almost you know, constant reassurance, first of all. At every opportunity, taking the time to say, you know, an attack on one is an attack on all, talk about in the case of the East Asian allies, the ironclad relationship, um, putting, in the case of NATO, for example, in the, um, uh, during the Cold War, stationing a tremendous amount of American forces um, in Europe uh, at every place that that, that was really possible. Um, now, we obviously, we have forces in South Korea and in Japan, but what we don't have right now, um, and we have the State Department and Defense Department consistently talking about the ironclad relationship, uh, consistently highlighting the U.S. commitment to South Korea. Uh, Amelia Puma in our panel at World Policy Institute really focused on that quite a bit and, and took every opportunity to point out that we have been solidly committed to South Korea, to its defense, uh, for decades. And she is right about that. But what, what has changed uh, in the last you know, 11 months, I guess, or uh, yeah, 11 months now, is we have a president who doesn't quite say that. And you have to, he, he sort of goes back, on, back and forth on that as well. Even while talking about the commitment even while the Defense Department and State Department talk about the commitment to South Korea, President Trump attacks the Korea-U.S. free trade agreement, which beyond being a free trade agreement is also a way to further bind the two allies together. Um, in the course of the campaign and, and before, 
has many, many tweets about um, that the South Korea has to pay up and that they're taking advantage of the United States and they should pay for their defense, which, of course, they actually contribute uh, billions of dollars to, uh, to the United States. Um, and so he has, uh, the president has introduced, I think, uh, a degree of uncertainty that wasn't there. Now, it's not, I don't think we're at a, a catastrophic point in that because you have uh, the bureaucracy really, uh, and even the president's own cabinet, taking pains to point out the commitment to allies. But, you know, ultimately, and that's great, but ultimately these things are the president's decision. Uh, and if the president decides to abandon South Korea, or if he decides to launch a, pre, uh, a preventive strike against North Korea, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't, the, the, the bureaucracy can try to stop him, his advisors can tell him not to do it, but he's still the president. Uh, and it's, it's ultimately his decision. And the New York Times uh, recently reported that fear about Washington decoupling has led to renewed debate in South Korea and Japan about going nuclear themselves with enough fissionable material and know-how to do so quite quickly. Uh, the Times also said there's uh, similar talk in Australia, even Taiwan, Vietnam, and Myanmar. Uh, did the panel consider that form of friendly proliferation, and, and how, how likely do you think it is? Well, it's a very good question. And so when, you're, uh, when you have a panel that has uh, representatives of these governments, there's going to be very little. That subject will generally uh, maybe not be dismissed entirely, but you know, the position of both governments is that this isn't something that they want. Um, we don't want that for South Korea. South Korea, their official position is that uh, they are not planning to develop nuclear weapons. They're a signature of the Non-Proliferation Treaty. Um, but it is, it is true that that is something that, that has come up. Uh, it's something that President Trump and the campaign said that he would be uh, willing to have. He seemed almost uh, enthusiastic about the premise of, of uh, South Korea and Japan developing nuclear weapons. I... I don't think that it is extremely likely. But what I do think is that both of these states have to be seriously considering it. If they think that there is any chance that the United States will abandon them, then they need to develop their own uh, deterrent. Um, because they are, are, it is good that we guarantee uh, their security. I think that's a good thing. I think it prevents a lot of, of problems in the region. But if we somehow withdrew that protection, if, the, uh, if it came into serious doubt, I think that would be tremendously destabilizing. And I'm not a huge advocate of proliferation, but I think you would have to achieve some sort of balance fairly quickly. Um, what South Korea's strategy is uh, what their stated strategy is, uh, Korea Massive Punishment and Retaliation, KMPR, uh, is one of their kind of defense doctrines. What they're trying to build towards is to have a, almost a second strike conventional capability, where what their plan is is to say to the North, look, you might have a nuclear advantage, but if you do anything to us, um, we will focus all of our military strength uh, on taking out Kim Jong-un and his government. Um, 
And we will, it may be conventional, but what, they're trying to get to the point where they have enough strength that they can pretty much guarantee his destruction and the destruction of his regime, um, even if they can't destroy all of the North Korean armed forces immediately or do it before they get off a, a nuclear launch. Um, but they're trying to say that even if you attack us with everything you have, you will not survive. And they're trying to do it without developing nuclear weapons. They're not quite at that they don't quite have that ability yet, but once they do have that ability, that will probably take uh, some of the pressure off, um, at least from uh, internally, if, if, if there's any kind of agitation towards an independent nuclear capability. I, mean, I don't think Seoul or Tokyo want to be the country that um, kind of sinks the non-proliferation treaty, but on the other hand, they don't want to be the country that gets hit by a North Korean nuclear weapon either, uh, even more so. So I don't think it is likely, but I think it's something that, that it would be almost irresponsible of them not, not to consider. The Times also said some in South Korea would forego their own nuclear capability if the U.S. would redeploy tactical nuclear weapons in their country to strike back at the North if necessary. Uh, did the panel have a view on the wisdom of that? Do you? One, one thing that is, uh, always makes a great panel, I think, is when there is uh, disagreement about certain things, friendly disagreement. This is something where I think there is unanimous agreement. Nobody on that panel... Um, uh, including myself, thinks that that is a particularly wise move. It's neither really wise nor unnecessary. Nor necessary. So it's putting tactical nuclear weapons on South Korea. There, the argument in favor of it is that it would it would remove any doubt of the U.S. defense of the South, or it would it would decrease the doubt, that it would be a very clear sign to the North that we are going to defend South Korea no matter what happens. But it doesn't really change the... It would be incredibly unpopular in South Korea, and it doesn't really give us any military advantage. I mean, we have nuclear submarines, Virginia-class subs, that patrol the Pacific, that are near there, that carry um, Trident II missiles that have eight... Uh, each one of which has eight nuclear warheads with, I believe, 175 kiloton, maybe 475 kiloton yield. You know, we could destroy Pyongyang from a submarine off the coast with one missile. And there's no real advantage of putting them on land. All it will do is be seen by the North as an incredibly provocative act that they might feel the need to retaliate against. It will be very unpopular among a kind of wide swath of South Koreans. And it will, if, if our goal is to denuclearize the peninsula, I'm not sure how we do that if we have reintroduced nuclear weapons in the South. So I think it's very, very unlikely. I hesitate, you know, in the year 2017 to say anything's impossible. You know, <laughs> Trump, Trump could see a report on, on the news that suggests that and then just order it, ha tweet about it, you know, five minutes later. So uh, I, I hesitate to say it's never going to happen, but I, I don't think anyone really wants that, and I, I, would, I would be very surprised if it happened. Another conventional military solution proposed on this podcast several times by WPI fellow James Nolte is the positioning of current anti-missile missiles on U.S. surface ships and submarines off the peninsula's coast 
to knock down any North Korean missile in its slow-rising launch phase, maybe demonstrate on an upcoming North Korean missile test or a missile fired by South Korea or the U.S. itself, just as a demonstration. Knowles says that system would provide sufficient protection for Washington to live with Pyongyang's dream of a nuclear-armed and accurate ICBM. Uh, did that come up at the panel, and what's your view? So this did come up at the panel. Um, Anki Panda uh, has a great uh, article that's co-authored with uh, Vipin Narang from MIT on war on, at uh, the website War on the Rocks, which I, I definitely recommend to people about missile defense. Uh, it's kind of easily Googleable. And uh, he said, and, and I uh, agree with this, that it is sort of a, a, a dangerous fantasy. Now, I separate two things. You know, what, when Nolte says that the system would provide sufficient protection for Washington to live with Pyongyang's dream of nuclear-armed ICBMs, that could be true. Um, it could be that the president feels that the protection is sufficient. Um, I don't think, and I don't think uh, experts in missile defense, um, n at least non-military experts in missile defense, because I uh, really think that, that it is sufficient. Uh, if you look at the three operating systems that are relevant here, um, the Aegis system, the ship-based missile defense, has an 83% success rate. Now, that's great, but that's not 100%. Um, the THAAD system um, does have a 100% success rate in tests, but it, it isn't really designed for ICBMs. Um, the ground-based missile defense in the United States, States, which is based in Alaska, has in optimal settings, uh, in optimal test settings, uh, about a two-thirds success rate, maybe a little less, of a single missile successfully hitting another missile. Now, if you shot multiple missiles at one incoming missile, you can increase that to what Trump said when he gave his 97%. So you, you, now 97% also isn't 100%. But the other thing we have to keep in mind about all of these systems is that there's not an infinite supply here. So, you know, you can, and, and optimal test conditions are not necessarily uh, reflective of a real-life scenario. So if North Korea fired multiple missiles at the United States, they could overwhelm the U.S. system fairly quickly. Um, Panda Narang say, you know, 11 missiles decreases the uh, effectiveness to about 50-50. And once you get kind of over 18, you could kind of use up the whole U.S. supply of interceptors. Um, so now, again, North Korea doesn't have that capability yet, but they probably will. Um, and even, in the, even locally, you know, 80, like I said, 83%, uh, that's good. That, that may be sufficient for, for Trump. But we are not talking about uh, weapon systems that are guarantee that no ICBMs get through to the United States or even guarantee that, that nuclear weapons don't hit Japan, uh, uh, South Korea, Guam, or Hawaii. Um, so I, I do worry that Trump will, will see that as some sort of... Um, I, I don't worry as much that it will allow him to live with it, uh, I think we are going to have to live with North Korean nuclear weapons, and I think that's probably the best solution we have is just to live with it. What I worry about is that he will say, oh, look, we're invulnerable because we have these systems that can uh, protect us from any North Korean attack, so let's go after them now. 
and then that gets uh, a lot of people killed on the Korean Peninsula, and it doesn't actually guarantee um, our safety either. So I, I do worry about that, and I, I worry that I worry that the perception is the, the protection will be sufficient. And look, there is protection, but it, it, I think you need a hundred percent, and and we're not we're not there. Moving from military means to diplomacy, the panel noted South Korea's election of a new president expected to re-implement a so-called sunshine policy of an earlier administration. What did that entail, and how did panel members see it playing out now? So the sunshine policy was um, to try to engage North Korea, um, to try to have some sort of promote economic development in the North and try to bring the two sides at least a little bit closer together. Probably the best um, tangible thing you can point to is the Kaesong, um, the city of Kaesong and the Kaesong and kind of industrial zone uh, just north of the DMZ, which was a city that had South Korean businesses, manufacturing firms, that the managers would come from South Korea, sort of commute uh, to Kaesong, and North Koreans would work there, uh, and they would you know, make a reasonable wage. Now, the North Korean government t- took about two-thirds of those wages, but even after that, the people would make a reasonable wage, and it would presumably promote development um, via the government as well. That policy fell apart. That city exists. Uh, I've seen it uh, across the DMZ. But those um, manufacturing, um, you know, the, the factories and stuff like that are more or less shut down. Although recent satellite imagery shows that the North Koreans are doing something there. Um, I don't think we know quite what, or at least, at least I don't know quite what. There was, uh, I think, some concern in the United States that President Moon would pursue uh, a sort of new sunshine policy, and that wouldn't be sufficiently tough on, on North Korea. Uh, because what the North did was kind of use that as, not exactly as cover, but they talked a little bit more warmly. They had this sort of joint program. There was also a lot more uh, family reconciliation uh, visits uh, between um, families that were, were split. Uh, but they were also developing nuclear weapons you know, out of sight. And so there was concern that that Moon would come back to that. I don't think that too many people are that concerned about it now. I don't think anyone on the panel really thinks that there will be a return to that. I think when Moon is talking about talking to the North, I think that's exactly what he's talking about, talking. He's not really talking about the sort of more warm type relationship. It's all relative. I hesitate to use the word warm. But he, I think he is talking about sort of baby steps here. Um, and I think it's always better to talk than not talk. So I, I don't think anyone sees a real return to that. I mean, look, that, I think everyone would like a return to that if the North Koreans would scale back their testing or, or have a moratorium on, on missile testing. I mean, I think there are conditions that could be put in place that would satisfy South Korea to return to that in a way that probably the U.S. will never be satisfied to return to it, but I also don't think that those that, that, that those conditions will ever be met, at least not in the near term. So I don't think anyone thinks this is something that's going to happen soon. For all the saber-rattling and rising tensions over the North Korean threat, uh, the panel experts ended with a more upbeat tone than some of their earlier comments would suggest. Uh, Panda noted the success of U.S. deterrence vis-a-vis the Soviet Union and, and more pointedly China under Mao Zedong. Say more about that. 
Yeah, well, it, it, it is, you know, there is reason uh, to, I guess, be optimistic, which is exactly that, that Kim Jong-un is a, a rational actor. He does not want to see his government destroyed. He does not want to end up dead. Right now, we have 1,500 Russian nuclear warheads pointed at us here in the United States. We have about 54 Chinese nuclear warheads, uh, you know, ICBMs pointed at the United States, but maybe more warheads, but ICBMs pointed at us, and yet we managed to sleep at night. In the early 80s, we had over 25,000 Soviet uh, ICBMs pointed at us, and yet we also managed to sleep at night. Um, there's this weird sort of idea that you test a missile, you test a missile, you get it done, you, you, you perfect the technology, and then you use it. And so we have to stop them before they're able to use it. Well, that makes no sense. You know, the only time that that happened was actually when we were developing nuclear weapons during the Second World War. Otherwise, no one else who has developed them then just used them as soon as they were, were ready. And so we have every reason to think that we can live with a nuclear North Korea. That's not good. Nobody wants that. It would be much better if they didn't have nuclear weapons. But the fact of the matter is they do, and they're not going to use them because they don't want to be destroyed. The only thing that could make, you know, nuclear weapons guarantee the Kim regime's survival. Using nuclear weapons guarantees their destruction. Now, on the, uh, uh, my own pessimistic view of it is... That's true, but we have a wild card here in the United States. And if, if the U.S. president doesn't think we can live with it, then who, who knows what could happen. If, if North Korea thinks that an attack is imminent, they might use their nuclear weapons. Uh, and, and I don't think that is likely, but I worry the trend is going in the wrong direction. Um, I certainly don't think the odds are zero, and I get progressively more concerned about it over time. You know, I think, you know, we, the North Koreans are the bad guys here, but we are the dumb ones. Um, and, that, and that concerns me. Uh, Dr. Kim saw an important role for the United Nations uh, with all the criticisms uh, about it. Uh, do you agree? What, did he, what, did, how, what was his reasoning? What's your view? Well, uh, you know, Dr. Kim pointed out the kind of New York, uh, the New York track, um, there is a very important role for the UN. First of all, right now, it's one of the few places where we have direct contact with a North Korean government officials. Now, that can be both within the North Korean, I mean, sorry, within the United Nations system, but it also because there are two uh, North Korean diplomats here in New York City, it also means that they can have talks with not directly necessarily with U.S. government officials, but with ex-government officials, with people who are sort of acting on behalf of the United States, but with, with some level of deniability, that we can kind of keep a line of communication open. So I think that that is important. Um, but, you know, North Korea is, first of all, to have sanctions be effective, you really need everyone in the world on board, or at least all of the major powers. And for all of the talk about sanctions and the, and the kind of uh, sanctions regime on North Korea, there are still countries that actually do a reasonably significant amount of trade with them, including countries like India. And I don't mean to pick on India, there are many others. Uh, and so there's more that we need to do within the UN. The only way to really 
uh, crack down on that trade is through the UN. But that's also the only place that we can really have have talks with with North Korea, and it's actually the only place where North and South Korea, if if that were to ever happen, could have the best place, not the only place, to have talks. North Korea prefers to deal with the United States. The armistice that ended the Korean War is with the United States, not with, uh, or with the United Nations and the United States, it's not with South Korea. Uh, South Korea is actually not a part of that uh, armistice. And so North, the North always prefers to deal with the other kind of major powers uh, and not the South. And, and the best place for that really is the UN. You've written elsewhere that war in East Asia remains an unlikely outcome uh, in any event, but you say the U.S. and its allies must have firm responses to any non-nuclear North Korean aggression towards our allies. Uh, what do you see that entailing? It's very tricky. I, I have written that, and I do think that. And what I think is the ideal is, you know, in one thing that in nuclear North Korea, perhaps the most negative byproduct is it will it allows them to be more aggressive conventionally. Now, when they do tests or if they do occasional infiltration of the DMZ and they'll put in new mines, they will um, sometimes kind of mess with things that actually uh, have harmed soldiers over the years. They have shelled islands. They've sunk ships. Now, I think we need to push back hard against that. I think one thing that the U.S. has done right for the most part uh, is increasing uh, military exercises, um, flying uh, a bit closer to North Korean airspace, not crossing it, but flying closer with with bombers. Uh, I think those kind of shows of force are important, not because the North Koreans don't know we have that capability. Of course they do. But I think it does, re- it reassures the South, and it shows, again, shows our commitment to this and that, look, even if you just test, we're going to kind of do a show of strength here. Um, we're not going to be dissuaded from our support for South Korea and our commitment to them by your aggressive actions in the North. And so I think that's good. Now, the only reason I hesitate at all to say that is because of the kind of Trumpian uncertainty. And if you have a president that is also talking about, you know, uh, glue, fire, and, and doom, or whatever the words that he used to talk about it, and is sort of talking about destroying North Korea, then it does make it a little bit trickier, I think, to be more aggressive, because you don't, what you don't want is the North to think that we're actually about to strike them. And so I don't really think you can talk about the destruction of a country and also be more physically uh, uh, aggressive towards them, I think that becomes very dangerous. So I think we should be doing what we're doing. I think we should be doing more of what we're doing sort of on the ground and in the air and in the sea. But I worry a lot about the rhetoric. Uh, I worry about that when it's combined with the rhetoric, not only from Trump, but, but from others in his administration. Jonathan, thank you. Thank you. World Policy Institute fellow Jonathan Crystal moderated the October panel, now summarized in the WPI blog post, Arms and Allies, Security Cooperation in East Asia. The day after we spoke, South Korea's new president vowed that his country would neither develop nor possess nuclear weapons, despite recent polling there that shows majority support for them. He also declared that a nuclear North Korea, quote, cannot be accepted or tolerated, but preferred other tactics, quote, sanctions and pressures are means to bring North Korea to the negotiating table and to make the right choice. (music) 
Featured in the new WPJ fall issue, Constructing Family, you'll find articles about defending families from terrorist recruitment, about rape and power in Nicaragua, and about the Trump effect on gay rights in Liberia. World Policy on Air is a production of World Policy Journal at the nonprofit World Policy Institute in New York. Interim editor Jessica Laudis, managing editor Laurel Jerombeck, podcast producer Isabel Vazquez. I'm David Alpern. Thank you.